to Blockchain Insider. Of course, I'm Simon Taylor and I'm joined by Kai Sheffield, head of crypto over at Visa. Kai, how are you doing, my friend? I am fantastic. Today is going to be a fun episode. I'm hearing about music NFTs on Twitter every day. I've just started trying to figure this out. We're going to learn. Yeah, we are going to learn a lot and we're going to figure out where does NFTs meet music. But we're also going to talk a little bit about the music industry itself uh, as a bit of background. And we've got some amazing guests to get us through all of that. Starting up, we've got Dowda Leonard, who's founder and CEO over at CreateSafe. Welcome to the show, Dowda. Tell the listeners about you and what you do, my friend. Hi, Simon. Um, yeah, so I started a company called CreateSafe around five years ago now with the purpose of building software for artists and their teams to better manage their business, their music business. You know, I've worked in the music industry for almost 20 years. I got to work in management, in publishing, in building production companies. And what I found was that there was no uh, software, like there wasn't an Asana or a Salesforce for the music business. And, you know, what makes, you know, what's so important about like having an Asana or a Salesforce? Well, you know, if you don't have a database that tells you everything about your customer in order to be able to sell to them, and your customer could be various different things. For our artists, it's their fans. For managers, it's the people that their artists work with, like a record label A&R or an agent or a brand. And that information is useful, right? And like in mostly any other business, uh, people are using Salesforce or Copper or things like that to manage those relationships to effectively be able to run their business. You know, same thing with something like Asana, which you're like tracking your actual work, right? Like you're like, all right, like I have to make this record. How do I get that done? How do I manage that with, you know, multiple parties? Turns out like people think that artists don't have to get organized, but turns out they do. And maybe software could really help with that. That's a that's a fun idea to think about, Dowda. We'll come back to that because I think the the ops side of you know the business, the business side of the business, we really want to dive into in just a second. But I got to bring in our other guests as well. Um, I want to introduce everybody to Summer Watson, who's CEO of Air and president at Vol1. Welcome to the show. Can you tell us a little bit about you, Summer? Sure. Um, so I come from mostly a technical background, uh, having spent most of my career in Silicon Valley, but um, in and out of traditional media um, uh, throughout that period, fashion and obviously music. Uh, so Volume One is a is part management company, part joint venture with Epic Records under the Sony umbrella. And there we focus on developing uh, young pop artists. So our roster includes uh, AJ Mitchell, Eddie Benjamin, Kid Culture, an exciting crew of uh, the next up and comers. And then on the air side, uh, it's a company I started with uh, my partner, Pusha T. And um, it came out of him really coming to me and saying, I've been in the music game for 20 years. Um, and, you know, we get hit up in DMs and even just me in association with with push uh, in DMs with with people looking for a shot. And so we thought, how can we start to build systems that can systematic, more systematically give up and comers an opportunity and share uh, some of what we've uh, learned over the years in ways where everybody can benefit both fans, artists and um, artist teams. Love it. I'm excited to get into all of that. Some of that sounds super exciting. Uh, last, but by no means least, we're going to welcome uh, Excellencia, who's a musician in the NFT space. Welcome to the show, my friend. Can you tell us a little bit about you as well? 
Definitely. Thank you for having me in the platform. I appreciate it. Um, I'm Excelencia. I'm a Latin artist, music producer, and entrepreneur. I've been in the music industry for about 10 years. 2016, I launched my record label and music publishing company. And around the same time, I started really deep diving into blockchain technology and how it was going to basically disrupt the music industry in a way. Uh, fast forward to like 2017, that's when I really got into crypto. And then uh, now uh, I, I launched my own uh, social token. That same summer, um, I started selling music NFTs, and that all led to me launching a crowdfund on the platform Mirror, which uh, we just recently met the goal, and I'll, I'm going to be closing that out to, tonight. That's exciting. Whoa, you heard it here first, listeners. Like, we, we, we got it real time, so let's do this. Uh, sure. Kai, do you want to jump us in and, and talk a little bit about the industry? Yeah, so we're going to start, start off from the very beginning and explore what the traditional music industry model is like in contrast to music NFTs. Uh, so maybe, Dauda, could you start us off of what does the traditional music business look like? You know, how are artists paid and who are the other participants uh, that are you know, adding value and earning a percentage of the income there? I would say that, you know, the traditional business, what it, you know, what it was for, let's say, up until the last, let's say, 10 years, things that really changed, 10, 15 years, was that if you were an artist, you somehow figured out a way to get signed to a record deal or a publishing deal. And a record deal would normally be what someone would call a royalty deal, where you would receive anywhere from 12 to at max 20% royalty on the revenue that was generated when your music was sold. And the record label would receive, you know, that other 88 to uh, 80%, right? And so, and then on the publishing side, right, there's like this master recording that you make with your, when you're signed to a record label. And then there's a copyright if you are the writer. And sometimes you get signed to a publishing deal and it's like what they would call like a 50-50 publishing split on your composition, which is like a publisher goes out there and collects the money, mechanical royalties for your compositions. And generally speaking, most people have always thought, at least on the recording side that those deals were very you know um unfair because when you're talking about a royalty structure what happens is the record label would give you let's say it's a million dollars and now you have to recoup that million dollars out of that 12 to 20 percent royalty so it's not like the record label makes the million dollars back and then pays you your 12 to 20 percent what happens is they make that money back. The recoupability is coming out of your royalty. So it'll take you anywhere from like three to 10 X in terms of like time to make that royalty back. So let's in the streaming era, if that was like the equivalent of like you had to generate around a billion streams in order to make that money back, by the time you make dollar one, the record label will make $4 million and you'll make back that million dollars. Super helpful. And, and then Summer, how do you think about like what services do record labels provide to justify kind of that structure? How are they able to get to the point where they had these very advantageous deals with artists? I think traditionally it was uh, very much of uh, a lot happened through the record labels. So if you were to go all the way back and there might be debate on whether these were the right things to do, but you know, you go all the way back to the Motown days and they're truly discovering and developing artists and working with them to get not only the best sound, but to help them be ready for the stage and help them 
be ready for the big time that was coming. Um, I think, uh, especially with the, the streaming area, that has all shifted, right? So they had a number of traditional sort of competitive advantages that were very hard to access from outside the system, whether it was distribution into physical retail shops, radio, traditional marketing, out-of-home marketing. Um, and now in the digital age, a lot of that has become more highly accessible to the average person, including that distribution is now, you know, there's, there's services like a dist from anywhere from DistroKid to Empire um, that can uh, get you into all the places that you'd like to be. Um, obviously, digital, uh, digital marketing and social is a lot more accessible. The one area that is still a little bit hard to penetrate if you're not um, in the system is is radio and the extension, the natural extension of that, which is editorial playlists um, today. So for the most part, I would say it seems like the biggest benefits um, from labels are, you know, the economies of scale. Uh, they, they certainly do have some learnings inside that can, you know, they can bring forward to other artists um, because it's what they're doing all day. Um, radio playlisting and, and frankly, uh, these days are sort of like a bank, a financing system, right, with the advances. I'll make one side note, just uh, doubt I'm a huge fan of your tools. And as he was explaining the system, I'd, I'd suggest everyone go and look. Um, he's got a really great record label deal simulator and publishing deal simulator that'll really help you see how these numbers work. And the one nuance I would add to that is it's a matter of time, arguably, of when they can earn uh, their advance back from their royalties. There is one benefit to streaming, right, which is that now we're looking at the area under under a curve of theoretically infinite um, that goes beyond any one person versus all the sales typically coming in a release window. You know, when we had limited space in a physical space and it was about buying CDs and records. Um, and so in those days, you'd see a big spike and probably a little drop off unless something happened. Um, and those things were harder to get, especially in physical only. And even as things went to, to Amazon and now with streaming, uh, if, if you're there, um, that that you just got a longer uh, period of time to be trying to earn that back. Doesn't mean that it's easy or right, uh, but it is uh, more of a matter of time. And and then X, uh, from the artist's lens, you know, tell me more about your journey and kind of how you worked with labels before, kind of what led you down this path to exploring some of the new models uh, with Web3 and NFTs? Yeah, for sure. So I've actually, I've been distributing music since like uh, digitally, since like 2009, 2010. So I started off with like CD Baby. I think I've gone through like almost every single distributor up until this point. Um, it wasn't until I think it was like 2016, I want to say that I started realizing that Spotify was going to be the tool for discovery. And that that I started kind of I had a, I had a song go on a playlist and I saw like a curve kind of trending. Uh, the numbers started going up and I thought that was interesting because it was an older song. So uh, once I kind of did my research, I realized there was a lot of independent playlists kind of supporting artists. And these were just regular people in their in their home or on their phone, just, you know, creating and curating their own playlists. So once I saw that, I realized that, OK, maybe now I can just go straight through the distributor straight onto Spotify and see what I can do to kind of build a, a listener base or like kind of build a community off of that. And that's essentially what I did. I started using uh, DistroKid, which like it's 100 percent revenue that goes back to the artist. They don't provide any services. So it's all it was all on me to basically handle like promotion and marketing and all of that. So I started building out my own playlist. I started releasing music much more consistently. And I started realizing that that avenue worked for me especially because Latin music over indexes on streaming platforms, kind of like hip hop and electronic music. So that really helped me kind of like 
gain more of a following, more listeners, and people were discovering me based off my music and not the image. So that I thought that was really cool to see uh, in the Spotify era, at least when that started really uh, taking off. And I've done a little bit of everything. I've done, uh, I've sold physical CDs. I've done the, you know, USBs with music in it, distribute those for free, pass them out, you know, street marketing, all of that. But, you know, once I realized like, okay, this is actually something that's a little more sustainable for me, then that's why I decided to kind of prioritize and uh, focus on, on the streaming platforms. And that, that worked out for me as an artist early on. But of course, you know, I reached that ceiling where it was like, okay, now you either need to like record with a bigger artist or, or get a collaboration to kind of break through or just, you know, have the capital in order to like continue doing a little more. So I reached the cap in terms of like monthly listeners. So a lot of the offers that I started getting from either distributors or labels, they were like licensing based offers, but they were based on the the idea that I had to record with another artist, which, you know, it was going to work for me, but it was almost like, hey, your project, let's let's kind of put it to the side and let's focus on you kind of recording with someone bigger to get you to the next stage. So that that didn't necessarily appeal to me. So I kind of continued on this like path of like independence and kind of owning the value chain and, and making sure that I made the decisions based on what I felt was right at the time, at least, you know, so. And, and I've seen these stats of, you know, there are what, millions of Spotify artists and only a, a small fraction, you know, earn fifty thousand know, dollars a year. Uh, I'm curious, Dauda, when you think about you know business models for artists you know, in this age of streaming, what else are artists trying to do? And you know, if there's a, a pretty difficult path to get to the point where you have enough streams, you know, how are you seeing artists try and expand and build businesses beyond just you know earning a fraction of a cent per stream? I think it's a kind of a, a distorted narrative to, to make it seem like Spotify is like doing creators wrong, you know, without, without Apple, um, iTunes, and then Spotify, there would be no music industry literally would not exist. And then previous to that, right. Like, um, if you think about the concept of like being able to like get your music bought, like, um, before the digital economy existed, you had to like, go to a store and get them to sell it. Like that's like someone's personal choice, whether they sell your art. And I, so I think there's like this distorted narrative that like everyone needs to be, you know, making like all this money um, and someone's like taking something away from them. What I think that the, the real narrative is that like there are record companies that sort of like they entered the space of like when Spotify was, was, was taking off or, or any of these platforms and they've created deals that like make it so that they can, you know, kind of retain the, the, the lion's share of that ownership and specifically around playlists, right? Like what happens is they and other companies control the real estate that potentially makes it harder for, let's say, any artist to get on a playlist or something like that. So just the stat alone that there's probably like 2 million or more people who are now making $50,000 or more. That's huge. Like, you know, before Spotify, there were not millions of artists making $50,000 a year, which is like, you know, above minimum wage. So I think when you want to think about like, well, okay, what are new opportunities for creators to monetize their art? I think that what we are, you know, right now with web three, what you're seeing is the ability for someone to sell a digital asset. And I think that what where we see the, the real innovation coming is people being able to monetize their rights on top of selling just a specific asset. And an example of that could be 
you make something and it now appears in a video game, right? Like a, something like a sandbox where now you have like a new revenue stream where someone wants to be able to play that, your music in their game that they've created inside a game. And I think that we're gonna see new platforms and marketplaces and concepts that pop up that expand the ability for like users, fans of music to take your, to take your art if you're a musician and amplify it. You know, like, the, like, like we saw playlists as this like thing that like actually created this mass audience for people. What is gonna be the new playlist that's built in t- inside of these different new digital and virtual worlds to amplify people's music, uh, to allow for new forms of monetization. Dowdo, I love that point about distribution. Um, and we've for the economists listening, for the bankers listening, like manufacture and distribution has kind of really transformed inside of the industry over the past couple of years. Like the manufacturer, you know, there's still an artist creating, but what they create if they're with a label gets owned by the label. So they now own that intellectual property. And in return, you might receive a cash flow in return for their distribution of of that of that product yeah for their for their relationship because they know lots of people with they have lots of inventory you know in the stores historically whether it was cds but now with spotify and with everybody else that helps you get access to these playlists but it's something x said about like owning more of the of the value chain was kind of interesting because it, it it reshapes what what's possible as a good friend of mine imogen heap has been looking at this space for many years and she told me that she booked a tv ad in new zealand right around the time she was buying a house like seven eight years ago and so she booked this tv ad and it was going to be a meaningful amount of income for her and her family and so uh, she was kind of looking forward to that and went and signed on a mortgage on the basis that this money was going to be coming and six months later there was no sign of a check 12 months later there was no sign of a check Two years later, she's really struggling to cover this mortgage because, you know, the various cash flow issues. So there's a whole bunch of inefficiencies that kind of come with that uh, in that supply chain and in that distribution. So I want to pivot us now and sort of say, okay, so we know we have this friction in the manufacture and distribution. Why are people looking at NFTs as a possible solution? Because, you know, the cynic in the back of my mind and, and there's and every bank I've ever worked with is like, Hey, that's just a solution looking for a problem, right? Um, maybe X, we can start with you. Like, do you, what was, what was it appeal to you about uh, NFTs in particular, but also social tokens, which are kind of related, but different? Yeah. So, uh, like I said earlier, 2016, that's when I really started deep diving into blockchain technology. So I started focusing, I knew about Bitcoin prior to that, but once I discovered blockchain, I kind of started uh, deep diving into just the underlying tech, how it worked, the fundamentals. And I kind of saw it as a way that it could disrupt like the music supply chain in and of itself. The idea of like perpetual royalties tied into a smart contract that self-executes every time someone either buys or resells it or whatever, that appealed to me because at the time when I was really learning about publishing, I realized how complex it is and how many like organizations and third parties and middlemen there is to collect those royalties and pay them out uh, efficiently. So I started helping out. I, I realized that when I started helping out a lot of creators from Latin America, so because they're considered foreign for them to get on BMI or ASCAP to collect those royalties, it was a whole process of like onboarding them and signing them up and making sure that they were collecting those royalties. So I started envisioning like, you know, imagine if all of this was done on chain, cutting out all of these, you know, uh, companies or organizations, then you can kind of pay those creators out. And in another light, using crypto because of like 
the cost and the idea that you can do microtransactions, the, the costs come way down, the time comes way down compared to like traditional uh, remittances. So it was like this like journey of just exploring different use cases that kind of led me to decide like, okay, this is coming. I didn't know the timing, I didn't know when, but I, I figured that eventually it was going to come and, it, and now I'm really seeing it in real time happen primarily with like music NFTs. With social tokens, I essentially I was exploring crowdfunding on the blockchain like around 2017, 2018, that was the ICO era. So I imagined something like an initial creator offering and I realized someone like a Grammatic, he came and he did his fundraise and you know, I thought that was, a, that was very interesting, but it wasn't my time yet. I said, let me actually sit down, research, learn this and then spend some time and that's exactly what I did. I discovered Rally through just kind of part of my uh, alpha and research was going through like the venture fund websites and seeing what they were kind of investing in and looking at. So I realized Coinbase uh, Ventures, they had Rally listed on the site. I saw Creator Economy and that appealed to me right away. So I checked it out. I remember cold emailing Rally before they even launched. And uh, that's when I decided like, okay, maybe I can't crowdfund or, or, or raise funds on the blockchain right now, but let me explore building a digital fan club along with like a loyalty program in the same way that some of the bigger brands like Starbucks or Nike or, or whoever else does. So that that's what appealed to me about social tokens in that, in that world. The concept of the, the loyalty program for the creators, fascinating. I want to come back to that. But some are, you know, it seems like for a lot of people, they were introduced to NFTs really with art. And it was now you have digital fine art that people can collect and trade. You know, how are you seeing this transition of you know art to music? And is it using NFTs purely just you know for royalties and ownership and tracking of those, or is music now being considered art? Like, is it about people collecting and trying to resell it to help unpack that for us? Yeah, music is definitely art. Um, but I think on the consumer side of all of this, um, it all makes a lot of sense, right? If we go back, um, not even that long, but before blockchain and, and NFTs were really in the conversation, people like Ryan Leslie were developing things like Superphone, right? And 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 Topspin um, before that with um, the Beastie Boys and, and um, Ian. Um, these are opportunities to identify and bring closer your super fans. And I think if you give them the chance, there is not everybody, but there is definitely a segment of your super fans who are more than willing to convey to you more than the you know fraction of a cent per stream that they are when they're listening. And so last year when uh, NFTs took off on the art side, it was incredibly exciting for me. Like everybody on this call, I think I've been involved in crypto from pretty early, bought Bitcoin super early and then got really deep um, around Ethereum, thanks to a very good friend who dragged me into the rabbit hole, um, who you know well, Kai. And I think the the seeing that um, art and NFTs were coming into the space felt like a very accessible way for people to understand the promise here, which is not just financial, right? It is it's fundamentally changing systems and the way people think about things. And so when you come into these spaces, it's less about I'm buying something from you or I'm investing in you. It is I am becoming part of your community. It's a bit back to like the patronage days almost, right? So who are your patrons? And being able to identify those uh, super fans, they are essentially like not only going to be able to help support you in every way possible, including emotionally, right, in a, in a super digital social age, but also help spread the word because they are so quote unquote invested in you. Um, I remember the first time Ryan 
gave me a demo of Superphone very early on, the first thing he flipped to, um, and if you aren't familiar, it was one of the early services um, that tapped into Twilio for messaging fans, text messaging fans. And it it all started from him coming into his sophomore album and asking his label, why can't we just remarket to the people who bought my first album? And they said, because we don't know who those people are because they bought it at Target and through iTunes and we can't I, we can't reach them. And he said to him, that felt silly. Um, and the same thing with social, right? If you have a big Twitter following and something happens to Twitter, Twitter's down, you're all of a sudden out of touch. So he decided to build a system for him to stay in direct touch with his fans. And the first thing he pulls up for me is not messages with fans um, or different functions. He pulls up the list of his fans. Um, and you can see by fan what lo- where they're located, how much they've historically spent with him. And he could say, hey, I'm going to LA. Let me hit up every single fan I have in LA. And even better, here's these top five who have spent you know over five figures with me that I can reach out to them directly and invite them to dinner. And those are really, really powerful things. It's uh, to me, I think NFTs essentially become a tool um, to build leverage in traditional systems. Um, they give us they give us a CRM on steroids, right? And so for me, the magic on the consumer side will be um, using this as one of many tools in your toolkit. I don't personally don't think it's helpful to take your music off of Spotify as you're doing this. If anything, it's like you're bringing some people in closer, but let's continue to use these larger distribution models to bring in the more casual listeners who you can then move down the funnel to become more and more dedicated fans, uh, whether it's coming to a show or, you know, buying merch. Um, So on the consumer side, I think it's incredibly exciting and it makes crypto and blockchain more understandable and and accessible for more people um, like art always does, in my opinion. Yeah, I I think this notion of the the CRM and kind of this open public permissionless CRM that anyone can access is really fascinating because it's not just, you know, in the Ryan Leslie example, it's his fans, but you can also see, you know, a artist that has a similar style to you, all of their fans, because it's public, you know, on a blockchain. And so Dawuda, you, you mentioned some of the work that you're doing building tools for artists and you know the need for that sales force. How do you think about the power of a, a blockchain within that? you know, artist to fan relationship? Well, we're we're in the process of uh, launching the beta for, I mean, we've launched it uh, for our first sort of product outside of the tools that we've created, like the record deal simulator. And it's essentially a wallet that, um, that enables, you know, any creator to manage their business using crypto and then easily mint their audio into NFTs. And we don't really think about it from the perspective of like NFTs that you bu- that you buy because the value is going to go up or down. We think about it as like um, these NFTs or NFTs in general will give people the ability to trade music with one another um, or other like let's say their fans to be able to create things with those NFTs, which is essentially like user generated content. So if you think about it, like TikTok and Splice today. Are like have like made it massively easy to make new art out of someone else's art, but you don't really get the attribution back to the creator. And so, like, what what's not happening just yet is just because the technology isn't there. But I think that most people are excited about NFTs for the ability to take that NFT and go somewhere with else with it and do something. Whether that's go into a game and be able to experience this gaming environment or experience with 
your the things that you've collected or create something new with it. And so that's why we started with the concept of like a wallet first, like you learn crypto and then the, you know, an easy tool to be able to mint audio. Like literally someone can like record from their phone uh, and attach a smart contract to it. And now we're kind of working on that sort of like rights layer, like teaching people like what are all their rights? There's probably like a set of different rights. It's like the right to distribute, the right to sync, the right to sample, the right to interpolate. And when you can give people all of those different attributes, they can now start to create a marketplace economy where music is being traded for its like utility and not necessarily for this perceived value of like saying like, oh, this is art. Like it is art intrinsically, the IP is, but the way it's experienced is, is very different, right? People people like to make music their own. Like everybody starts, you know, as a kid, they find a song that they love and they reinterpret it and they sing it differently and they perform it differently. And that's how you actually become a, an artist. You sample something like with, you know, hip hop wouldn't have existed without the ability to have derivative culture. And so like, I think that a lot of people are excited about the derivative composability of music with NFTs. And it's, I think that most of the experimentation that you're seeing is happening in that way, where someone uploads their music, let's say to OpenSea, Snoop Dogg is doing this right now, you know, uploaded to OpenSea and yo, you can use my stems as long as you own this. But, uh, Frank Dukes, who's a very, he's a, he's a, you know, hugely popular and successful songwriter and producer. Um, he did a 10,000 PFP collection. Now, anyone who owns those NFTs has access to his sample library. You know, we work with Grimes. And we're going to do the same thing with her, where it's like all of her IP is going to, as we you know release this next album, be available in different experiences like the Sandbox and Axie Infinity, where people can use her art and make money with it and still you know be you know attributed back to her as their original creator. We think that's the actual horizon for NFTs and the blockchain with artists. I love that because it's turning the role of curation into creation on a whole other level and it's making it super permissionless and the royalties are just kind of taken care of. So not only is this thing a CRM, it's a royalty engine, a like automation all the way through. So somebody like uh, some third party, some video game, some creator, some curator can go do that. And the artist is like, yeah, go do it. Uh, have at it. And then the royalties are just taken care of. And I think people lose that functionality quite a lot when they talk about, oh, well, this cat NFT is worth X million dollars or whatever. They forget the functionality side. And how today we really can't trace trace these things. And so there's a lot of money being left on the table. Sometimes some of these deals are dead before they start, right? Because you go to sync a song for a smaller project especially, and you have to not only identify all the different writers and producers who contributed to it and trace who still owns a master recording, but you have to get all of their permission. And I end up in just email threads from hell um, trying to get this done. Uh, and you can immediately see like if that, it's less of a technical problem, more of a business problem, but if someday that could all start to be um, on chain. And I think new applications like this, forcing that conversation more than trying to retrofit it to the old business um, could be where, where it starts to get traction. I think that DAOs and just more like the community aspect of what people are talking about lends itself to like almost like a new behavior being enforced where like sometimes people will be like, well, how do you, like, why would somebody buy that NFT and then come back, you know, re-upload it and make sure that they like attribute back to the original creator? It's almost because it's almost, it's like 
being proud that you actually could attribute that to the creator, right? Like being proud, like I was able to use this sample that I love. Like most of the time, like I've worked with, you know, plenty of artists that sample music and you never want to replace the sample. It's always like, yo, I'll do whatever I can do to keep that sample in my work. And now to be able to make sure that that person gets paid, it becomes like a, a badge of honor. And I think that that is like, the, like that, that is, that is a sort of a part of the DAO and community oriented approach. Um, whereas like 10 years ago, 20 years ago, it was, it was about music piracy and theft and all of that. So I think it's going to be an exciting behavior change. Uh, one of the biggest challenges I faced uh, with like trying to onboard other artists, especially if they're coming from the major label system, is like the why, right? Like trying to kind of change their mindset. And it's like a mental model, right? Like we're disrupting business models, but I feel like we have to disrupt mental models as well. And that's probably the hardest part about trying to onboard creators into like Web3. At least that's what I've experienced. How do you feel about like making it easier to collaborate with other artists and and it, are you collaborating with your collectors and your fans as well? You know, since you've launched the social token, like how has that changed some of the, the relationships that you've had? Yeah. So uh, one thing I learned is that like community, I thought community like early on in the beginning was just my fans. And then what I came to learn is that it's actually like a broad community of like everyone from like developers and founders and just different people. Right. It doesn't necessarily have to be a listener or like a super fan. And like once I kind of started learning that, that that made it a lot easier for me to kind of like actually put out the music NFTs or do the crowdfund because I said, you know, maybe they don't relate with the music as much because it's Latin music, it's reggaeton, it's very niche in the space. Then I thought with the crowdfund at the very least, they can understand my vision as an independent artist and what I want to accomplish is very similar to a lot of the other artists in the space. So I've, I've been connected with like uh, the collectors. I still talk to a lot of them. Everyone that's joined the crowdfund, I've built relationships with them outside of just crypto. Um, and that's been, you know, that's been a, a very good way for me to continue like building out my brand, not just in Web3, but also coming up with ideas to like basically help other artists, which is something that I really want to do is continue onboarding other creators because I was doing it pre Web3. So now it's only natural for me to continue doing that. So a lot of them are interested in other ideas and things that I want to build within the space. So I see it as a big like opportunity to network and not just like sell, 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 right? Like you're kind of building something, you know, uh, beyond larger purpose. I love that sort of um, bringing other people into the fold and that bottom-up community movement. If I think about the video gaming industry, like gamers tend to not respond well to NFTs at the moment, but I think that's a lot of it is cynicism of gamers being sick of big gaming companies just trying to make money out of them, whereas the bottom-up movement in the community side, especially in music, feels very, very different. And it's it's kind of independent creators bringing each other into the conversation and finding new ways to monetize, not necessarily changing the old ways to monetize. And I think that's, uh, that's a really important point. Hey, listen, we just need to take a quick pause here whilst we hear from our sponsors, because we got to pay the bills too. Uh, and we shall be right back. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Crypto has opened up a new world of possibility, and Visa is helping everyone take part. Visa enables commerce across their network and crypto networks through solutions like FinTech FastTrack, a quick and easy way for crypto innovators to issue payment credentials. Join us in this new money movement. Learn more at visa.com forward slash crypto. Here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services, and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. 
If you or somebody you know are up for a challenge and fancy working for one of Flex's most flexible companies, come check out our open roles. We have roles in growth, product, sales, talent, and more. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. That's 11fs.com forward slash careers. I'd love to better understand what does this mean for consumers? And I know personally, like for myself, like it seemed like one of the most interesting things this enables is this social proof of when you discovered an artist. Like how many times have you heard someone say, I was the first person listening to this artist or I listened to them before they blew up. How do you prove that? I can't just show you my Spotify. It's very hard to have the data and, you know, versus having that on chain. And so curious how each of you think about what does this mean for consumer behavior and what's in it for them? You know, it seems like there's very clear benefits for artists, but what will drive consumers to want to collect? Well, I think I'm going to continue to harp on this. Um, like, while I do think that there's like the, the concept of being like, I was first. And I think that actually enables what we call main contributors to exist. Like people who like managers, A&Rs, marketing people, people who can now say, yes, I was first to helping this artist become who they are. I think that there's a definite, like, it's like how the new music industry gets created. But I also think like the big part for consumers, once again, is like being able to use that music and do something with it, right? Like Splice works, not because everybody who uses Splice is becoming a hit making producer. It's because they can use sounds to just create and have fun. It's a game. It's like a, it's like, it's a, it's a, it's a form of self-expression. And then you, t- then you go from like TikTok, which is like one way, I mean, Splice, which is that way to TikTok, which is being able to use full songs and make dances and, and you can become something you can make, you can make it your own. Um, I think that music is the most, one of the most expressive tools that we have. And so for com- consumers being able to take a song and do something with it and make it their own, like you said, put it on your, you know, your profile and make it a badge of honor. There's all these different, like you're using the music to do something. And I, I'm really excited about that concept and like the emergent new behavior around using music. Yeah, I think that's really cool. I think we we do typically see in different creation cultures, it's a, you know, a two percent of people are creating and the vast majority are consuming. For the people who maybe aren't ready or don't want to lean in yet, I think the biggest thing that is holding us back and has traditionally held crypto and blockchain back is just the UX, the experience around it and making it accessible for for people and easy to understand. And I think when we ask questions of, you know, why there are people, artists, fans who are resistant to the, the very real movement that's happening right now, a lot of it is just confusion and overwhelmed. And so the moment we can make some of these things easy to use and, you know, solving or replacing a current habit, I think that's when we'll start to see even even more traction, which is also why I say like, know where you are at any point, meet people where they are. And if we know right now, this is what we have, lean in and grab your patrons, but don't block out the casual listeners because it will all catch up and they can start to come into the space as things get easier to come in. Yeah, so it seems almost like it's, it's a compliment rather than a replacement. It's not, you know, crypto needs to rebuild a brand new version of Spotify and get 100 million people over to, to listing music exclusively there. 
it's you can still have your artists and your listeners on Spotify, but now there's an additional platform that you can offer and that you can engage with your super fans. So X, how do you think about, you know, the UX and the experience and kind of how to offer something for the range of different fans that you have? Yeah, so a big reason I'm still leveraging like Web2, like something like Spotify is because I realized like early on, maybe I can't make a living off of that, unfortunately, at least at the time where I was starting. But I realized that if that can translate into other opportunities like sync placements, which I started getting a lot of uh, shows and things like people just reaching out to collaborate because they discovered me and they wanted to work with me. That was a way for me to kind of expand on my network and my music and and continue growing, even though I wasn't necessarily making a living um, at the time. So in, in terms of the UX, there's a lot of friction because a lot of my fan base is based in Latin America. So they're they're familiar with the space, of course. You know, I don't want to say they're not, um, but it is still emerging markets. A lot of them are investing to try to try to escape hyperinflation or, you know, they're trying to invest or they're doing like play to earn things. So like I feel like they're right there, but they still need like a reason and maybe a platform that maybe appeals to them in order to start kind of supporting uh specifically music nfts uh but a lot of them what i'm what i'm noticing is that they're starting at OpenSea, and then from there they're kind of working their way down and they're starting to discover these other platforms like either zora or or something cultural something that kind of speaks to them and i think that's just going to take some time before they really start kind of diving in and and finding their way i just want to plug createsafe.xyz because uh you know your potential fans if you were to if you were to upload your music to create safe it's it you know super fast very cheap like even like a, a new artist they don't have to spend money on gas to be able to like create an nft um and i think like if it, and our ux is like it's very simple it's very easy to use um and so that's why we built it for like sort of like the emerging market uh uh that like specifically like india africa and latin america which is places where like people can't afford to spend like lots of money on transaction costs to like consume music definitely yeah, I'm seeing that if, if you if you look at the if you look at some of the data, like what you're seeing is that like emerging markets are now starting to, you know, basically come online and they're also starting to use digital wallets. So I feel like over time they're going to use those digital wallets to start connecting to these applications. And, you know, I know they're going to be involved in gaming, but I think music, it's inevitable and it's just a part of the culture for for all of them as well. Yeah, and it's not necessarily UX of any particular product for me. It's it's a space in general. Even the word NFT sounds a little scientific, you know, a little technical and um, <laughs> setting up a wallet, a non-custodial wallet, and not having someone to ask if you get locked out. There's just things that make it harder for the average person to get their head wrapped around uh, currently. And it seems like it's still very much as a collector, mostly single player of, you know, you're kind of searching through marketplaces, you're collecting an NFT, you're holding it yourself. They're not great ways to display it. But I think about it almost like, when I set up my first Facebook account, I put in some of my favorite musicians in my profile. And then, you know, that's data that that goes to Facebook that, you know, they now know who I am. You know, being able to have a collection that represents your digital cultural identity that goes with you across the internet where you can represent, you know, who you are and have music as a core, you know, way that you really manifest who you are as a person seems to be a, a major advantage that NFTs have instead of having it locked on on one platform. And that's always been a part of this culture, right? That's That social currency is almost more powerful than, than anything. That's why social media is where it is. That's probably why a lot of the avatar projects are what they are. People like to to show who they are, what they're into, what they, you know, 
they like to they like to floss a bit and show the communities that they're part of. Yeah, I remember early on the the algorithm changes really affected me um, when I was kind of coming up as an as an artist because like I was doing very well for one month, then the algorithm would change and they would tell me to pay to boost my post, and that completely affected you know what I was trying to do at the time. Like so, you know, I went through that on Facebook, Instagram, and a few of the other ones. So like kind of like the fact that these algorithms can't be changed and people are just discovering based on, you know, what they want to discover. I think that's that's also, you know, a, a, an advantage to this. Yeah, I was a guinea pig of that in the early days. I made Facebook games. As Kai knows, that's where we met. <laughs> and uh, we started in the Wild West with no algorithm and 100% of revenues right. coming to us and that changed pretty quickly. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think that just to close this out, is there a risk that we go back to that world with NFTs? Like, I, I do think that when we're looking to the future, we see the utopian future. Like, what are the risks here to artists? What are they opening themselves up to? And how do they go into this space thoughtfully? I don't know who wants to jump in on that. You mind if I, if I jump in? Just because I've been noticing a, a few things like... There are certain parts of this where you're kind of adding to the layers of what you're already doing. So like, you know, if I have to, you know, record some music, get it produced, mixed, mastered, you know, find cover art, do all these different things, distribute it, try to pitch it, do all these different things to try to get it out to the world. Now I've added an additional layer, which to me, I, I enjoy it. But I think for a lot of artists, they're going to get overwhelmed very quickly. Also, because I think that there is finance tied into this. Um, I think that a lot of people might get you know, it may be like speculative or, the you know, the enthusiasm is there now because things are going well. But if we see a downturn, kind of like a crypto winter or something, I think a lot of people are going to leave the space. Meanwhile, others, you know, hopefully remain building. But I think that's another part of the risks that a lot of creators may not may not be talking about right now. You know, there could be changes, you know, affecting your, your mental health, for example, because you're on top of this, you know, day in and day out. So, you know, hopefully those are things that creators can be aware of as they continue to navigate the space. I love that point. It's great when number goes up and you feel like, hey, I just I just made a ton of money, but oh wait, that number went down now and no, I didn't make a ton of money and I've still got right. all of this work to do and all these bills to pay. Like volatility can be good and bad. So we're gonna be careful on all of that. Hey, listen guys, we're out of time. Can you believe that? I just sat back and enjoyed this conversation. That was amazing. Um, so thanks everybody for, for joining in. Um, where can people find out more about you and your companies? Dowda, let's start with you. CreateSafe.xyz. You can hit me on Twitter at Dauda Leonard or at CreateOS. Perfect. Thank you, Dada. Summer, how about you? I'm on Twitter as Surgical Summer and Instagram as SummerWatson.v1. Beautiful. And uh, X? Yes, you can find me on Instagram, Twitter. That's where I'm the most active as Excellencia. Luckily, I have the full name. I don't have any numbers or like, you know, asterisks or anything like that. So you can find me there. And Kai? On Twitter at Kai Sheffield and Visa.com slash crypto. You'll find me at SYTaylor on Twitter or at 11FS.com. And we hope we find you subscribing to this podcast. Because if you haven't already, go ahead and hit that button. It helps us out so, so much. Um, and why not just go back through the back catalog? There's plenty of other stuff we've done on NFTs. We've done stuff on Web3. So if you like this show, there's, there's more there for you to find. Uh, and thank you so much. Bye for now.